Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. We're recording this live on November 18th, 2021. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. And good morning. Good, good morning to you. <laughs> nice and short this morning. <laughs> all right. Uh, we got a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about how self-driving cars can consider pedestrian safety. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about uh, potential interviews for more management-style roles, questions for senior folks who have me- recently moved to new companies or seeking sort of increases in salary. So we're going to answer that salary question. And how about interviewing a competitor? So we'll talk about all that. But first, some quick programming notes. Uh, Hey, we have those Team C's Human Factors Minutes out there. Most recently, we did on climate ergonomics. Uh, Barry has provided some resources that we use to populate that Human Factors Minute. So go check that out. That's right in the feed if you're listening. Um, Human Factors Minute is also on Spotify and Patreon. So if you're interested in that type of format where we break down topics in one minute, little chunks. You can um, help support the show by subscribing to those. Um, And I think the only other thing for programming notes that we'll mention is that next week here in the States uh, is Thanksgiving. So we'll be off next week, but we'll be back the following week, first week of December. I guess that'll be what the second, December 2nd, we'll be back. Uh, But anyway, we know why you're here. You are here for Human Factors News. So let's get into it. That's right. This is the part of the show all about human factors news. Barry, what is the story this week? This week, we're talking about making self-driving cars more human friendly. So automated vehicles could be made more pedestrian friendly through the applying of neuroscientific theories of how the brain makes decisions to automated vehicle technology to improve safety and make them more human friendly. Researchers have set out to determine whether a decision-making model could predict when pedestrians will cross the road in front of approaching cars. And whether it could be used in scenarios where the car gives way to the pedestrian, either with or without explicit signals. This prediction capability will allow autonomous vehicles to communicate more effectively with pedestrians in terms of its movements in traffic and any external signals, such as flashing lights to maximize vehicle flow and decrease uncertainty. The team used a virtual reality pedestrian simulator to analyze uh, trial participants in different road crossing scenarios. As predicted by their model, the researchers found that participants added up over time, the sensory data from dis- uh, vehicle distance, vehicle speed, acceleration, as well as communicative cues. This meant that their model could predict if and when pedestrians will be likely to begin crossing the road. So predicting be- pedestrian decisions and uncertainty can then be used to optimize when and how the vehicle should decelerate and signal to communicate that it's safe to cross, saving, saving time and effort for both. So Nick, what do you make of that? So I, I'm a big VR nerd. I love the fact that they're using virtual reality to test this theory in a situation that could be potentially dangerous. This is um, something that I think we'll see a lot more of as virtual reality technology becomes more mature. It's already kind of there, and we can actually use it to test in some of these environments in which it is 
like potentially more dangerous, right? <laughs> you don't want them engaging in risky behaviors where they could get hit by a vehicle. And so I think this this makes sense from that perspective. I think this article just in general is a good springboard to kind of talk about some other things. And we've been using articles over the last couple of weeks to use as a springboard to, to jump into deeper discussion. And I'm excited to get there. But I want to know your thoughts. What are your general thoughts on this article? So when I first read the article, I was like, well, surely, and I think we've done a couple of articles like this before where you sit there and go, well, don't we know this already? Isn't this already sort of there? Um, so it can, be seen, it can be seen as quite simple stuff, but it does show just how many almost basic gaps there are in our knowledge, that, or say knowledge that we just take for granted, that to develop AI um, in transport and in other domains that we're going to have to do a lot more work in filling these holes with good, solid research. So I think it's really good that A, they've used, um, that they're using things like this to create a solid baseline for future development. But like you say, I, I really like the idea that they're using virtual reality to take people out of harm, but to be able to predict, uh, sorry, to be able to use that to gather data in risky situations. There is some thoughts there about, is there a difference between um, the data they gather there and what they would gather in real life? But short of putting people in front of dangerous situations, I think you're going to struggle to do that. And there, there has been a fair bit of work done to sort of prove that um, people, if they're using a VR uh, environment, that they will, you know, they'll act in the way that they would do in real life. So we use that in training quite a lot already. So it's, yeah, it, it just the size of the simulator as well must be amazing. But yeah, as you say, let's talk about some of the, um, um, some of the main elements of, of what we could talk about. So where would you like to go first? Yeah, I think maybe we start with current state of self-driving autonomous vehicles and then maybe jump into sort of the human factors issues as it relates to pedestrians. And then we'll link that all back to the article. So, you know, let's let's start with sort of what's going on with self-driving cars now. Uh, I think the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people is Tesla. Um, yeah. And and do you want to talk a little bit about what what's going on at Tesla right now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Tesla, I think, is pretty much recognized as the as probably the leader in the market in terms of they've got their um, self-guided vehicles, the the you know the self-drive vehicles, and in many ways that's what they're selling as. And uh, but they've really got that caveat of they're expecting the driver to sit there, hands almost poised around the steering wheel, ready to take control when it goes wrong. And they they you know te Tesla cars have had some accidents. Um, it's interesting that the that the 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 Tesla environment at the moment is very is pretty much like a like when there's an airline crash. That as soon as it as soon as there is one crash, then all the news articles, all the Twitter and all the face social media goes mad because they're like, oh, they, they they've had an accident. Whereas actually the number of accidents they've had is very actually comparatively very small. And a lot of them have been because when we're expecting um, drivers to, you know, be ready to take over, I think we're expecting them to be sat at least understanding what's going on. A lot of the accident, accidents have been where they've been maybe reading a book. In fact, there's been a couple where they've been sat in the back seat um, and then wondering why they've um, why they've crashed. And it is still new technology. There was a, um, a recent example where the um, Tesla is using like over-the-air updates, and and there is some caution around that about how that works, but. It is interesting when you sort of go back to sort of look at it and say, well, actually, we've had this levels of driver support for now for quite a while. You know, we've evolved from, you know, ma uh, you know manual gears through to automatic, um, though we haven't quite fully made that progression in the UK. Um, cruise control, you know, parking support, and now you're into the lane assist and auto drive. So there is an evolution there. Um, 
but yeah, I think that's where them sort of bits are. Um, what do you think about the um, uh, so, so, some of the other research? Where, where, where do you think that's going? Yeah, I want to take a step back. So w- when we talk about autonomous vehicles, I think a lot, the general public's mind might go to Tesla uh, as the leader. And that's just because of how pervasive their technology is, right? They're trying to push it. They're testing it in a, a, a way that may or may not be safe. And we'll talk about that. But I think everyone thinks Tesla because that's what's out there. That's what's available to people now. I do want to talk just a little bit about the domain to begin with, um, because I think there are some other really interesting things going on, right? So when you think about self-driving vehicles, I think most people, most companies um, kind of boil this down to two core statistics about success of, of autonomous vehicles, right? One is how many miles has this driven? And that's kind of acting as a way to measure how much data this each company has for training the AI to uh, sort of react to situations in the environment, right? And sort of also how much investment that company has put into self-driving cars on the road. The other metric or the other statistic that is looking, uh, that everyone's looking at is disengagement. So this is when the human operator actually intervenes and takes over because the computer, the AI, the system couldn't understand what was going on with a situation. And they look at this by every mile that was driven, right? So this is not a statistic that a lot of companies share because it's proprietary. It's kind of how they train their data. They'll make improvements based on those interactions. And so everyone's proprietary about that. But this does kind of uh, give us a sense of what people are looking at and what's going on. Now, I do want to take a, a, a step back even more. We mentioned Tesla. There are other companies that are doing this, right? So Google's sister company, Waymo, uh, they are widely considered the leader in terms of uh, self-driving technology with their testing piece, right? Because, I mean, Tesla's doing their stuff, but in terms of Waymo, they have 20 million miles, and this was as of last year, so it's probably even more now. Yeah. Most of those, not even in California, you know, they're they're looking at sort of um, 0.09 disengagements for every 1,000 miles. That's a pretty good ratio. Uh, you also have General Motors with Cruz, and that's they're at about half a million miles at and 0.19 disengagements per every thousand miles. So these are two companies kind of that are well ahead of everybody else in terms of miles driven, disengagements. Uh, that's with within the state of California though. That might be that might change, you know, as it goes from state to state. But this data here is actually only a limited snapshot of what's actually going on. Most experts actually consider them the leading uh, programs just in general. Anyway, I wanted to give that context for the field itself, because I think it's really interesting when we do kind of break it down and think, okay, yes, Tesla, they have this system out there and they're 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 doing a lot of it based on like real world uh, feedback, right? I think, and that's that's scary. And we can talk a little bit about safety. I don't know. Do you want to jump into the safety bit here? Yeah, I think it is because I, 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 you know, Tesla, as you say, are doing it, are doing it on the road. They're doing it there, and 
you know, there, there is a story out there of, you know, didn't a self-driving car actually kill somebody? Um, so is it worth diving into um, into that? Because, you know, the, the, there's a lot of um, publicity issues around this and, you know, what the uh, what the intricacies around it. So March 18 of 2018, um, that, that was the first time a self-driving car actually um, um, ran down a pedestrian. And... It was an Uber car with a safety safety drive behind the wheels, so it had all the uh, the elements there, and but unfortunately it hit and killed a forty um, nine year old woman who was walking her bicycle across the seat in in Arizona. So that was basically we see that as a reminder that um, self driving car te- self driving technology still has a way to go, um, but it's that's only. Um, one, uh, you know, that's one fate. I think they we said that they produce one fatal accident every hundred million miles driven, and when we compare that to actual um, self, uh, you know, normally driven cars, so non-autonomous vehicles, um, it's it's still completely way off what your day to day metric is. So you know, if you're driving your car normally, you're at much greater risk of of having an accident than you are in a, in an autonomous vehicles in an autonomous vehicle. So. Yeah, I think there's still a um, that there's a perception issue with this, as, as long with anything else. But the systems are um, uh, are updating all the time, and as you quite rightly pointed out, there's um, there's a, a lot that's going on. There's a lot that's being learned, and um, the 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 other half of the problem is um, almost like that false positive as well. So where they're taking corrective action where they where they didn't need to, um, but it, it's all get it's, it's all been pushed down that road of um learning as we go and you could argue should we be learning out on the um on the highway and shouldn't it should it all be done in a lab but that's again as, as we said that's not really not really the path that, that the likes of tesla is taking so there is also the, the there is issues at the moment um, particularly in the american side of things where they they're trying to track and understand um just where these accidents happened so the ntsb is um really trying to cover a lot of these accidents and they're they're trying to work with the 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 manufacturers to get the data underway and they're, they're, they are having um struggles with that with with different companies um so i think that's you know there, there are the the safety elements of this but there is also a whole lot of i guess um there's policy issues around um a lot of this to play with isn't there so do you want to sort of have a look at some of the those policy elements that um, that we need to be looking at? Yeah, the policy level, uh, the policy stuff is interesting because right now a lot of this is taking place at sort of the state level, and this is kind of the wild west as we are experimenting with autonomous technology. Right, I think in terms of safety and laws surrounding autonomous vehicles. Those here in the states, it's it varies by states. And so you might have some states with no legislation around it. And I think as as of 2000, there was 29 states with legislation, legislation that had passed uh, with some sort of mandate on on autonomous vehicles. It looks like the two most friendly states to testing autonomous vehicles as California and Arizona. So you'll hear a lot of these stories about accidents that happened here. You just mentioned the woman that was killed in Tempe, Arizona. And then I think there's there was another crash that happened uh, in, oh, I forget where it was, but 
I think there was a Uber crash that happened in California. So you'll hear about these states because they are the most sort of friendly for uh, for, for testing autonomous vehicles. Although I say friendly, but I think what actually might be happen happening here is that they are unfriendly to it or they have passed so much legislation that confines and restricts the system that they want to test it under those conditions because then they are dealing with potentially the the most strict guidelines that they'll experience and therefore can roll that out everywhere right and so i think what they're doing is kind of taking a uh, a conservative approach and testing it from you know as much restrictions as possible hopefully that will help so again with policy here we're we're kind of the worry is that legislators don't understand what's going on and that interpretation of what's going on with the systems and with these companies is going to be uh, is going to sort of delay implementation. And that's why it's so crucial that we have somebody in <laughs> legislation to actually advocate for human factors and interacting with autonomous vehicles. I think Missy Cummings was just uh uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Assigned or um, anyway, I, I think she was just nominated as some role in government. And I, I failed to remember because I didn't put it in the show notes. But I think something like that is helpful to have somebody who is intricately involved with human factors and understands autonomous systems and can act as a liaison for communicating that with lawmakers, legislators, and I'm talking from the state side, right? Ultimately, policy should shape whether or not self-driving cars are good or bad for the environment. We talked about climate ergonomics, mentioned it at the top of the show. We just did a Human Factors Minute on it. Barry, you've you've brought up the uh, Chartered Institute of Human Ergonomics and Human Factors. Uh, they have that white paper on it. You gave a presentation on it. It's really important, right? And so as we're thinking about self-driving cars, you know, the social costs of carbon emissions and all that stuff is also very important to consider. Yeah. And then ultimately, the bottom line here is that transportation policy doesn't do much of anything uh, for the social cost of driving. And that's a problem that's going to get worse unless we actually do something about it. Yeah, that's a lot of information. We, we just covered so much there. I want to make sure that we have a chance to go back and touch on anything if we missed anything. Is there anything that I said that you want to comment on? Um, not really. I think we've, you know, like I said, we've covered a lot of information there there really quickly over, over that side a bit. Um, I think fundamentally for me, it is, there is just still, it is such an exciting space in many ways that, um, you know, that things are happening really quickly and updates are happening really quickly. We're learning so, so much stuff really quickly and it's going out there on the road, literally on the road straight away. And it's getting that balance, isn't it, between policy, safety, and and technology development. So I think it is a case of watch this space, but let's try and try and do it as safely as we possibly can, but still keep a, a sensible pace of change. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's true of like many technologies that are emerging now that could kind of have ethical or even life-threatening impl uh, implications, right? So thinking like AI, facial recognition, that type of thing, not yeah. so much deadly, but has ethical considerations. Technology is is really important and sort of we want to make sure that we advance at the right pace to make sure that we're matching legislation and that we're matching also 
uh, the safety concerns with that stuff. Yeah, no, that, that that's that's absolutely right. Um, I mean the the obviously the the other big hitter with this, we we talked a lot about the vehicles, but actually, what this article is talking about a lot is is pedestrians. Um, so, I mean the, the issue with pedestrians with this is fundamentally where does that relationship happen between people and vehicles so shall we have a um a skirt around the issues of of the human factors issues with pedestrians yeah let's talk about them there you know this one is not going to be as in-depth as the other section that we just talked about to give kind of the context of self-driving vehicles but i think there are a lot of issues with pedestrian crossings in general right there's think about sort of the human factors that goes into a person crossing a street. There's the markings on the ground that you look at. You know, is it two lines that indicate where you should cross? Is it a series of horizontal lines that indicate a space where it, it you know, has more visual weight to the driver? Or there are all these things that go into that, right? So then there's also the markings above the road. So how do you indicate to the system that you would like to cross? You press a button that says, I want to cross. And then it gives you a signal at the other end that says, theoretically, it is safe to cross. No car should hit you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what do those signals look like? And then how do you make that accessible? How do you make sure that people who are vision impaired are able to cross these intersections? Well, then you add uh, auditory cues. You know, you said cross, cross, you know, and a countdown, 10, 9, 8. Seven, six. You also have, you know, wait if if it's not safe to cross. Wait, wait, wait. So then you have all this stuff that's going on, and this is just at a very high level here, right? And then you throw in autonomous vehicles to the mix, or even let's let's not get to autonomous vehicles yet. You have other humans in two-ton vehicles that could potentially collide with you, and so then you have the human factors bits of. Well, how does a human read all these cues as well? Well, you have the red light that indicates to them to stop. Do not go or else you will hit somebody who's here. You also have how do you make pedestrian crossings in a way that is not blind to drivers traveling at speed so that way they can see you. And then also you have the interaction between cyclists and pedestrians and vehicles. And it just gets very complicated very quickly. These are all discussions about formal crossings. This is, in every sense of the word, the environment telling you it is okay to cross here. That doesn't even get into other things, like what happens if you cross in a place where you're not supposed to, which is why that woman in Arizona died, because that system was expecting to anticipate those types of interactions at a crossing where it is clearly marked, but she was crossing in a place where there were no markings. And so the car wasn't anticipating that. And how do you, it's just this massively unfortunate event that the system didn't understand. The driver wasn't paying attention and couldn't intervene in time. There's a lot going on. I, I'm going to stop. I'm going to let you talk for a little bit, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just want to dig that, dig into that bit about the uh, different environments a, a bit more as well, because you're right. All, all of these um, autonomous vehicles, it's a system, isn't it? So they rely on systems, a system's understanding to to break down what they expect and when. And you could argue that actually in the centre of towns and well, in the centre of cities, in particularly, that's easier 
because you know you do have laws and regulations around it and you expect people to to cross at the appropriate place it's um, rare except on movies i've noticed that they always dive out in front of cars and across traffic and things so as long as you're not in a movie you're fine um so you have the formal crossings but the you've got different environments so in towns and when we've been to the states in the past um you know the there's lots of um smaller suburb areas that don't have um paths on them because they don't actually expect people to walk anywhere but if you're actually walking on the road um or something like that and the cars you know cars are not expecting you to be there how do they know that you're there how do they recognize that you're there when the you know the the edges of the um the the delineations of the road aren't as formal as they are in um in a built-up area so there's all them sort of bits and as you quite rightly say around uh, around cyclists we I rarely hear anything being talked about in the autonomous car space around cyclists. It's always pedestrians and um, and people. Uh, sorry, pedestrians and cars. Um, cyclists are almost a, a law unto themselves. And so, how do we interact with them when they don't? They act in probably um, a more unpredictable manner than, than quite a lot of a lot of other people because they're on the road. They're a participant user, um, but they're also probably much quicker and much nippier than um, than a pedestrian would be. So, I mean, an interesting piece of legislation that seems to be coming around at the moment, and I've got to give a bit of a hat tip to Professor Paul Salmon for pointing this one out, is that the, the, the legislation is coming about to have cyclists and pedestrians having some sort of beacon on them. So some sort, either a Bluetooth beacon or um, a wireless beacon or whatever on, them, on their person. So the um, auto, auto, autonomous car systems can recognize that they're there and it will be sort of a mandated... Um, idea and that type of thing which is great um really like the idea except for you know as, as a short-term fix i get that whilst the the systems aren't good enough to necessarily do all the recognition for all the use cases let's have a simple system in place to make it happen but my fear with that is is it just the short uh, the uh, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to um we forget about why we have why we put this put the system in place as a, as a short-term fix and then it becomes mandated about you have to wear it all the time. We, and then we forget about why we did it. Then suddenly somebody gets ran over um, or has an accident or something and they weren't wearing the um, the beacon. And suddenly it then becomes the victim's fault um, for not, you know, yeah. for not wearing it when actually, you know, we we take the foot off, literally the foot off the gas of the development for the cars. Um, there are some other issues as well. We, we mentioned... Um, about people um, with the auditory cues, so that EVs have already not making enough sound uh, to provide audio cues for deaf people to cross the road. Um, this article talks about um, you know the car um, automatically um, slowing and maybe flashing its lights because flashing lights in the UK is seen as an almost acceptable way of highlighting the fact I've seen you, please cross the road or whatever it is. Um, but if the EV slows down and flashes its lights well if you're blind you can't you um you can't see that it's um it's flashed its lights so you know we, we're not looking necessarily thinking about all of the um you know if you're deaf if you're blind what's the um um the the impact of of them um and then we again going back to the space issue there is this idea in the uk that's been pushed out quite a lot around shared spaces so the idea being that uh, they get rid of a lot of the road markings and um proper crossing uh, crossing areas and pedestrians and vehicles just have to mill around and and do their thing so the cars can drive slowly through pedestrians can just step out into the in, into the space they don't have to wait don't have to look they just walk and cars are expected to slow down 
and it, that's all based on psychology and then you're meant to if the pedestrian will make eye contact with the driver because the driver driver is driving slower in the theory that the driver then makes a, a human contact with that person uh, with the pedestrian so things or oh, actually it's not just a pedestrian it, that's somebody i better not knock them over so they slow down and then in sort of negotiate and there's places like brighton and lost where, where they've got that if we've got these sort of systems in play how is that going to work you know it would the autonomous vehicle always have to be subservient to the um to the people so then shared spaces wouldn't work what they um wouldn't really work in that way because we would have to talk about what does priority really mean so right. you're right there is a lot to dig into with the human factors issues with pedestrians i think in some ways they're they're generally a little bit easier because fundamentally we're all about protecting people um we want to make sure people are safe and that's always pretty much going to be that standpoint um but there is a lot of i mean uh, the, if you're a human practice practitioner in this field i think that's where there's going to be a um, a lot of rich pickings isn't there oh yeah yeah certainly have some uh sort of looking for some some job security in that sector that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not right yeah, let's let's uh, tie this back to the article, right? So I think they we're talking about here this basically a new model of decision making that they have come up with as a way to sort of understand or predict pedestrian behavior as they're crossing the road, and they're using it to test it for autonomous vehicle development. And once again, they're kind of using virtual reality as the method for the environment to test whether or not this is in fact safe, right? And to see if the model is working in the way that it's predicted and it does. We want to talk about some examples here just from the article so that way we can get through it. Yeah, so I mean, they, they had, um, in fact, they had a, a number of um, d different scenarios that they were using, um, but they all, um, they, they, like I said, they all use different um, behaviors of whether they flash the lights, whether they slow down and things like that. But fundamentally, in every single example they used, they used it to gather that data. Um, and, and their model, which they called, well, they called it a drift diffusion decision-making model. Now, when talked about diff drift diffusion, I assumed we were going to be talking um, around some, uh, you know, some sort of uh, Fast and the Furious film um because because they, they like the whole drifting and things don't they but apparently not but the um yeah all the examples that they use showed that actually this model works um really well so it clearly can know it's only going to go one way now and if that can um fulfill the, some then some of that uh, fundamental knowledge for how um av um autonomous vehicles act then then it's clearly going to move forward yeah, speaking of moving forward, you know, we can speculate on the future. I think it's pretty clear to see where where things are going. We still have a lot to learn, and like we mentioned, there's a lot in this space where you're not going to have, uh, where you, where you are going to have that job security, right? I think some some key takeaways here is that as these pedestrians are making the decision to cross, they seem to be adding up a bunch of different information lots of evidence on whether or not the car is going to stop or hit them or anything like this. And and not only relating to the vehicle's distance or speed, but also using these visual cues from the vehicle and whether or not it's going to decelerate or flash its headlights or anything like that. So there, there's a lot of information that the, the pedestrians are using to make informed decisions about crossing the road. And just quick non sequitur aside it took me like 30 years of my life to figure out the the punchline to the joke why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side 
I didn't realize what that was until I was like 30 years old. <laughs> the chicken just wanted to die. I didn't <laughs> understand. <laughs> uh, yes. Anything else that we want to bring up with this article, autonomous vehicles or human factors issues, anything like that? Oh, I think we've, we've, done an awful lot this evening on this i think it is i think it's it's a subject we're going to come back to in different forms um <laughs> around the um autonomous vehicle thing as it throws up more and more different issues um but fundamentally if anybody from leeds is listening then i would love to come and see this um this vr simulator it's apparently the biggest vr simulator that does what it uh, does what it does it's the largest simulator um i don't know how much color is for pedestrian simulators um but it's it's clearly an, a, a a big uh, big big bit of kit. So yeah, if anybody's listening, just hit me up. I'll I'll come and have a look at it, take some photos. We could do you know do do some sort of live interview from there. That'd be brilliant. It always ends up being the shows that we uh, struggle with in the show notes that end up being the best <laughs> episodes. All right. Well, I just want to thank our patrons this week for selecting the topic and a huge thank you to our friends over at Leeds University for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, you can join me on Office Hours. I do that every Monday where I find these news stories. We do post these links to the original articles and our weekly roundups on our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories if you'd like. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons uh, for picking out these news stories. And we especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Uh, speaking of patrons, um, I, I understand that some of you have been asking where Blake has been. Uh, Blake is still around, and he's actually in YouTube chat right now. He says, great show, gents. Uh, and if you want to hear more from Blake, you can always become a patron. And we do have Human Factors Minute. He is still uh, working on those Human Factors Minutes. So if you want to hear more from Blake, you can join us over there. He will be back. He will be back. Um, but yes, I, I've been told. If, if I let him back. I'm, this is quite, quite comfy now. <laughs> if Barry will let him back in. Hey, there's there's enough room for for three people or more people on the show. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do want to mention Human Factors Minute. It's something that we put together on a weekly basis. We are uh, always coming up with new, interesting, exciting topics for you all. If you are a subscriber to our audio version, you have likely heard Human Factors Minute in your feed now with the Team C's effort that we have going on. Uh, there's more like that on, on Patreon, and uh, we're on Spotify now, too. I guess our treasurer says to plug Spotify at some point. So we're there. It's a paid thing you can do. Uh, help support the show and really just uh, helps us pay for things like this fancy restream thing that we're on or 
the web hosting fees or anything like that. Anyway, enough plugging. Thank you, Treasurer, for the kind words. Uh, it's time that we get into this next part of the show we like to call... It came from... It came from... Yes, it came from... This week is all about uh, Reddit, and we got some really fun ones this week. This is where we search all over the internet to bring you topics that the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're at to help other people find this content. We have three questions tonight. Let's get to this first one here. This one is, I have an interview for a PM role, focused design systems at a certain company. Any tips? Uh, they go on to write, I know this is a design sub, but any designers who move to a PM role? I have about three years experience working as a hybrid PM slash designer. This year, I find it difficult to find a PM role, which was more focused on design since most PMs were generic or technical. I want to get into this and and really use this question as a springboard to talk about the transition from a worker B role to a more management position uh, and and really from like the human factors perspective or the researcher perspective or anything like that. Barry, I want to get your thoughts on this. Have you transitioned to a more managerial position and what was that transition like? Do you recommend it? Um. Well, I would, um, absolutely. So yes, I've come all the way from um, being a worker on the floor, now I run my own company, and some would say I att even attempt to run my own projects. Um, and I think it's one of these things that it's, some people get really scared of it. And I think, you know, quite rightly so, because I think it's not, it's not a skill that, you know, you just pick up. It is, you know, everybody sees that you go, you transition to the project management role or the management role. It doesn't just have to be project management um, and think it's a natural transition. For some people, it's just not. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a skill in its own right. So you do have to put time and effort into it. But what I would say from, certainly from a, a human factors and or any sort of discipline that's, that's within our sort of realm is I think we make really good project managers and um or managers in general because we take that human-centered approach with us and and it really that that's when we become really really evangelical because right now you know we as human factors practitioners we're expected to talk about human factors it's what we do it's what we love but when you then go into more um generic human uh, generic management or leadership roles that are maybe not directly associated with with human factors you can still tell the story you can still um, fly the flag and that's where i think actually we've become really really effective i've seen some really great people move out of the human factors domain they've gone in to do different things almost new things but they take that human factors approach with them and it just i think it, it just works really well um what about you nick what what have you got experience of moving into that project management domain and and sh taking off the uh, or, or putting on the mantle of uh, senior management so i've certainly kind of uh, stepped into the management role, and it's interest. It's an interesting transition because now instead of focusing on the worker bee tasks, right, you, the stuff that you've been trained for in school or uh, previous industry work, right now you're sort of managing people, and I think we can link it back to that conversation we had last week about what makes in or was it last week or two weeks ago about innovation? Yeah. What what does ultimately make innovation possible is that facilitation piece, right? And I think it's absolutely true when it comes to managerial positions as well. You as a manager are a facilitator of a group of people that need to work well together. You're sort of making sure that those relationships are sound between people. You're also making sure that 
the end user is being considered in every step of the process. If you are stepping into a more project management role or a role that is sort of not so much human factors, but human factors adjacent, it is an interesting step because you're absolutely right. You can tell that story. You can make sure that um, everybody involved is keeping the end user in mind and you can start to, I guess, permeate you know, the human factors thought process into everything else that's going on, at least in, in that area that you are managing. And so I think ultimately it, it, it's a good decision for companies to hire people that have been in human factors roles in the past into those management positions. Uh, it, it's, um, it's not for everybody. I, mm-hmm. I will say that, right. I think some people really do find joy in, I call it busy work. It is busy work, but it's also highly rewarding work when you can see things that you have designed, when you have developed the relationships that you have made with other people on your team, with developers, with designers, to see something go from start to finish that you've had your hand in, that maybe you feel a little bit more invested in. I think that is meaningful to a lot of people. And so if you don't want to go into the management position, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just different things work for different people and it's a consideration. Anyway, that's that's my two cents on it. Sounds why, good to me. Yeah, why don't we get into this next one here? This is a question for senior designers. I'm going to extend that to researchers, human factors practitioners, who have recently moved to a new company. Are you seeing upticks in salary due to a hot job market? This is by, oh, shoot, I didn't mention the, who the other one was by. That one was by uh, Zacharia. 20199 on the user experience subreddit. This one that we're talking about now is from Chris Hansen AMA on the user experience subreddit. Uh, <laughs> I love that name. So they go on to write, all I hear about nowadays is the hot job market and how people are able to demand higher and higher salaries because demand is so high for a ton of jobs across a lot of industries. Are folks seeing this in product design industry, human factors industry, research industry, can we demand higher salaries than we could have a couple of years ago? Barry, let's have the salary conversation. Yeah. I, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've just been in that um, in that space at the moment. We've, we've just taken on um, some new people. Um, in fact, we've taken on, what, three new people this year. And absolutely right, I think. Um, in, in Certainly in the UK, it is a hot job market. There is a ton of jobs out there. there um, people are desperate for human factors practitioners be that on contract or salaried or, or whatever do we think that di- directly go- says that we can start demanding higher salaries i'm not that convinced it is actually i think there is definitely um it is definitely uh, an employee's market i think the the ability to challenge and and ask for more is is definitely there um and certainly with my experience that that people um, are willing to do so, which I think is absolutely a good thing. And I think you should absolutely do that. Um, one of the things I got told when I was quite, um, when I was first starting the job in the civilian job market is always reject the first offer. Um, I don't know whether that holds true across everybody, but certainly um, I always did. Um, and it seemed to work, you know, not in an offensive way or anything like that, but, um, but there is always a discussion to be had. So there is that. The, is it gonna? I, I think there is a level of yeah, you can ask for probably a bit more, but not loads more. I don't. I think there is no matter what job you do, there is a um, company still have to 
make a turnover and, and a profit, and and that is still largely capped, and more so with the um, with the pandemic having gone on. Then you know there isn't as much in some areas that there's there's money floating around. In others, it just definitely isn't. Um, so hospitality, you know, is where people were doing um, jobs in them sort of fields. They're just not there anymore. They're they're starting to come back slowly, but they're um, people aren't willing to sort of um, they, you know do much until until that becomes a lot more stable. So I think there is that's a very long way around me going. I think there is an, an opportunity to ask for some salary, but it's, there's not you going, there's not the ability for you to go there and ask for ridiculous amounts of money because fundamentally the, the, um, the, the maths or the economics still remain the same, that there is a maximum amount of, of money in the pot to be, uh, to be, you know, dished out between the, uh, the entire company. What about from your perspective? Do you see any, any changes or, um, and are you, are you able to ask for more, ca- more cash in the U S? Yeah, I think this is an interesting question because I don't necessarily think the question here is about what the salary is. It's about how do I know what my worth is? Mm-hmm. And that's how I'm reading it. And I think that's a really important question, right? Somebody who's just out of college, uh, you know, just got their human factors degree may not know how much they're worth. Uh, and that is an important thing to know because you could get lowballed. <laughs> Somebody could hire you for something, you know, that is completely lowballing compared to your cohort, right? And so my advice for this is normalize talking about salary. Understand what people who have similar skill sets to you are are making because then you have that negotiation piece at the table. And if you are approached by a company with an offer that is not within that range, then you can come back and say, I was actually hoping for something more like this. Based on my own research, this is kind of what I was expecting. And it gives you, as a potential prospective employee, the tools to negotiate that salary. Now, obviously, there's a lot that goes into whether or not to accept a job offer, the benefits, the bonuses, the base salary is certainly kind of the biggest factor. But, you know, the the happiness that you would experience on the job is also part of it. How you would work with the team. These are all factors that play into it. But in terms of the salary perspective, you know, you can certainly try to normalize talking about it with other people. And, you know, in fact, that's that's something that I've started doing. And as you get into positions, you can start offering up your salary and saying, look, this is how much I make. I think you should make the same amount. Start normalizing talking about it because I was in a situation where I was grossly underpaid and I didn't realize it until I started talking about it with others. And so now I always offer that information out there first to make others feel comfortable about sharing theirs with me so I can say, look, here's how much I make. How much do you make? Let's compare notes. Is this right? And then again, it's just more bargaining power that you have to bring to the table later. Okay. Anything else with salary? Only one more thing, just to, on the back of what you, what you just said, some companies do try and push a culture of um, that you shouldn't disclose what your salary is. Um, and I wouldn't be bullied into going down that approach whatsoever. What you talk about in the pub outside of work is entirely up to you. Um, companies cannot, um, 
you know, and force you um, to do that to do that sort of thing. So, and the fact that if anybody has in has that in their T's and C's, you should really that should be a bit of a not necessarily a red flag, but a bit of a, a warning beacon as to why would they need to do that in the first place. It's so. actually against the law in the United States to require employees to not talk about it. So, fun fact. All right, let's. Uh, we got one more here. Uh, let's get into it. This last one here is: Would you request a user interview with a competitor? This is by anonymous geographer on the user experience subreddit. I'm working on a project, and a marketing person on my team wants me to reach out to a person who works at the company who is our direct competitor. He said we can be transparent about why we want to talk to our direct competitor, but also protect our product information. Honestly, I don't think the interview will be that useful, so I'd rather spend my time trying to get interviews with other people. He's pushing hard to get me to try to get this interview, so it's making me think that it might be a good idea. Am I missing something? I've never conducted an interview with a direct competitor to a product I'm designing, so I'm at a bit of a loss here. What do you all think? Barry, have you ever interviewed a competitor? Um, I've not interviewed a competitor directly like this, but I have done it in a way that I've let the competition know. I've let the competitor know through a through a conversation that this that a product has been developed. And when I read this, I thought this is the marketing person trying to get into the head of the competition of letting them think that the you're developing something that maybe um, that that they don't know that you've got or basically just getting the competition worried um which may or may not be a good idea obviously it depends on the product depends on on your maturity and uh, also sort of product maturity and things like that so it could be going down that route it could also be looking about you know would that direct competitor give up some um some little gems about their product that um you know when you sort of turn around and say, well, you know, have you used this product? Well, we've got our product and ours does X, Y, Z, which um, if they see that as big hitters, then, you know, you could take that as, um, as um, I guess, material to then then include into your own product. So I think it's been, the way I read it is it, it is being used as a, as, a, as a method for either trying to not steal ideas, but try and get ideas from the opposition or just to try and get under their skin um in terms of we're producing a cool product and we subtly letting you know about it um i think if that is the case then the marketing person has a bit of responsibility to you to tell you that's why that's happening um because i can't i cannot honestly see why you would go and ask the direct competitor for really for truly useful as a as a, as a ux research project um and then tr then also trust the information that they're giving you fundamentally i, I just don't think you do that or am I being naive, Nick? Do you think you do you think you would do that? No, I wouldn't do that. In fact, I would push back to the marketing person and say, "No, let's not let them know what we're doing." Uh, or it, here's here's a better approach. You ready for the better approach? Why don't you interview users that are using that product and ask them questions? Because that is ultimately the user base that, as a marketer, you are trying to reach, is it not? Because <laughs> as a competitor, you want to steal those uh, people that are using the other product. And so if they can identify gaps in that other software, that is a opportunity for you and your company to sort of patch those gaps into your product. I think that is probably the best way to go. And I don't really have much else to say to that other than don't don't engage with the competitor because it gets tricky, especially with copyright and patenting laws here in the States. It gets tricky. Just avoid it entirely. Talk to users instead. That's yeah. that's what your role is. 
And so if you can recruit them somehow, that's another tricky bit, but that's a conversation for another time. If you can recruit them, then uh, I think you can certainly get some insights into that product. All right, let's switch gears here and get to this last part of the show. We like to call one more thing. Needs no introduction. Uh, Barry, what is your one more thing this week? So last week, I posed the question, should I be upgrading to Windows 11? Um, the answer to that question is still no, it's still waiting. And I haven't got to that point yet where I've said, yes, let's just do it. Let's move on. Though I have read up a few more things now, and apparently it isn't as bad as I think it's going to be. But my one more thing this week is still to do with Microsoft. I opened up my uh, my Outlook this morning. I thought it was broken. Um, you know when you might do something and you might have inadvertently pressed some keys and it'll put it into a, it'll put the, maybe change the style of it without you realizing um, maybe the window format and stuff like that. Yeah. I thought that's what had happened because it just didn't look right. They had the the um, title bar and is wrong and the menu is a bit floating and stuff. Like that. It turns out that it updated overnight without me knowing about it. Um, and it's done it. But when I opened up Word, that's when it popped up with the, we've updated, look at our new things. But it didn't do it on Outlook, which was the first thing I look at in the morning. Um, and so I, I did spend a good couple of minutes just going, what have I broken? How have I done this? Um, what do I need to do about it? And then it was, wasn't until I opened what that I was like, oh, actually, you know, we've gone through a fairly common update all the way through. Um, so firstly, it was the onboarding experience of this, of this new piece that really annoyed me. Um, and secondly, I just don't think it looks very good. So if anybody's from Microsoft is listening, can you just have a look at the where you've got the title bar and the search bar element at the top of that? It looks a bit naff. I think you could do better. Um, it looks like it just feels like you've got a lot of wasted space up at the top of there. Um, so that is free UX uh, design information for, for Microsoft there as a value add because um, I think you need to change it fairly quickly. Um, some fighting words. So, yeah, there we go. But it's meant to be helpful. I mean, if you don't give them constructive feedback, they won't change anything, will they? You know, Anyways, I totally be done. <laughs> I, I totally, I totally feel the uh, everything's changed on me because of I think a key press. You know, like my son will come up to the keyboard and just start slamming buttons occasionally, and I'll be like, "What did you do? I just, there's something. What happened?" Uh, yeah. Anyway, my one more thing this week is, uh, hey, HFES is going to be hosting uh, the president fireside chats or town halls soon, uh, and yours truly is going to be hosting those. So. Ooh. The first one will be on Friday, December 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll get more details to you out there soon. Shortly, this is kind of late breaking. Today is when we finalize the day. So I just wanted to get that out there for everyone to listen. Put it on your calendar. If you're interested in what's going on in HFES, uh, write down your questions and come to that event. It'll be a great time to sit down with Chris Reed and uh, just talk about the state of everything. This is kind of a cool opportunity to uh, have one of those town halls. So. Again, we'll be pushing out more details about that soon. That's really it. That's all I had this week. So that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, we invite you to check out episode 183. We actually took a look at the state of Tesla, Waymo, and other autonomous vehicles. Great companion piece to this week. Uh, comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion. You can always join us on our Discord community. You can visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, leave us a re five-star review. Do that wherever you're at. Uh, that always helps the show, helps other people see that, yes, this is a trusted podcast and that it is good stuff. Uh, we hope it's good stuff. If you're here listening, then I hope so. 
Uh, two, if you're here listening, tell your friends about us because you must like the show, surely, if you're listening to the outro because <laughs> most people just skip the outro. So <laughs> I'm going to just tell your friends about us. Three, if you're still here and really want to support the show, consider supporting us on Patreon. <laughs> we are two patrons away from being completely self-sustainable, so that's always nice. So always links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about getting hit by autonomous vehicles? I'm on Twitter at Baz K. You can also find me on on Facebook and Instagram and all that sort of stuff. But you can also find me on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, which is at www.1202podcast.com. Huge thank you to Blake Arnsdorf for hanging out in the chat tonight. And as for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Monday for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.